This is Financial Standard, the definitive source of news, thought leadership and analysis for Australian wealth management professionals. Financial Standard. Take the lead. Welcome to the Financial Standard podcast. I'm your host and editor of Financial Standard, Jamie Williamson. The last few years have seen a significant amount of consolidation in the superannuation industry, with bigger super funds opening their doors to smaller players with promises of lower costs, increased efficiencies, and ultimately better outcomes for members. But these mergers don't happen overnight, and there can often be a lot of hurdles for funds to jump in order to guarantee members' best interests are being met. To discuss some of the misconceptions around these processes, with us today is someone who's certainly no stranger to mergers, Spirit Super's Chief Investment Officer, Ross Barry. Hi, Ross. Thank you so much for joining us today. Pleasure to be here. We'll get stuck in. You've obviously been a part of quite a few mergers um, throughout your career. Most recently, the, the merger between TASPLAN and MTAA that created Spirit Super. What are some of the biggest misconceptions from your experience around Superfund mergers? Look, I, I think um, I should preface my answer by saying that the uh, key motivation for mergers should really be about delivering scale benefits to members. I mean, mergers need to be in members' best financial interests and in both sets of members' best financial interests. So the ability to look through and, and understand the type of scale benefits that may come from a merger are really important. But as yeah. I've said before, they don't just automatically happen by virtue of banging two funds together. You, you've got to uh, you've got to plan the merger very carefully and look to all the key costs associated with running a fund. In a lot of cases, it involves some pretty direct negotiation with service providers, whether they be fund managers, custodians, administrators, yeah. all that sort of things. So they have to be. They, they really, uh, as I've said, those scale economies don't deliver themselves. You've got to proactively go in and renegotiate a lot of those contracts. Okay. What's usually the biggest pain point throughout the process um, in a merger? I think there's probably two, but I think without a doubt, single key pain point, if that's the right word, is people. Um, Mm -hmm. You know, effectively, if you are delivering scale benefits from two organisations coming into one there, there is going to be a loss of people on that process yeah. or another. Um, and that's a painful process. The, uh, these are people we're talking about with lives and mortgages and career paths and all those sorts of things. And, you know, what's happening is, you know, there are, for a large part there are at least changing roles, changing reporting lines, and in some cases you know, people are leaving the, the combined organisation. So. It's something that needs to be managed very carefully and it's always the most difficult part of it um, because, you know, there are a lot of decisions that aren't easy to make and they're yeah. certainly not easy then to, to implement. I think the other thing that I'd put, uh, call out is just that it, what I refer to as product mapping, I suppose, and when two funds are coming together, they could have a very similar existing product suite and, you know, if they're very similar, then it's a much more painless exercise because you're really just migrating one set of assets and one set of members from one set of funds to a set of successor funds. But if they're quite different, it's it's a very different experience for the members because in some cases they may be moving without necessarily um, having a say in it. 
to, to a product that might be slightly different to the one they were in before if it's not the successor fund. So funds need to be very sensitive to their members and the communication with members has to be really strong um, so that they understand what's happening in the, in the event that they're moving from one product to another, that, that it's being very clearly communicated to them you know, what that change is. Okay. When you're going through this sort of due diligence process and, and you know, planning out the merger, how is it exactly that you ensure that you are maximising value for those members? Yeah, it's a, it's a great question and it's, um, it's not particularly easy, but it needs to be a very strong focus. You know, the regulatory requirement is that you need to manage both funds right up to the last day at which they exist which means you, you're reporting on, on both funds, you're managing the risks associated with both funds and all the, all the member administration of both funds up until the, the point of, of the merger. And, of course, you know, to the point earlier about the impact on staff, it actually means in practice that a lot of staff had two jobs. They have their old job or their existing job, which is the fund that they're currently working on, and then they're going to be working on a fund which is beyond the merger and they may have a different role. And so in some ways they have to already be performing that role before the merger, looking forward and planning and, and thinking about you know, their processes under the newly merged fund. So big yeah. strain on people in that sense, in that they really have to, you know, have to clone themselves basically. They've got to continue to do their job to <laughs> the best their ability to fund and that also be... Uh, ready to to go forward with the new fund, um, but to your to your question about um, the responsibilities really are to ensure that members' interests are always served, both prior to the merger and from day one once the merger is completed. Yeah. Um, so at the top, obviously, I mentioned that you've been involved in a few mergers now. What are some of the lessons that that those experiences have? have taught you about executing a merger? Is there one particular lesson that you recall from a previous merger or anything that, that sticks out for you? The thing, as I've said before, the, the thing is that, uh, in, my, well, in my case anyway in particular, um, I was never not involved in a merger since 2011. So now is the first time yeah, I've right. involved in a merger for almost 10 years. Um, and that yeah. dates back to the merger of First State Super and Health Super back in, in 2011. Mm-hmm. Um, and the reason I raise that is that I think, you know, in, in the environment we're in where we can probably anticipate more mergers in the future, I think you've just got to be attuned to the fact that the landscape is continually continuing to evolve and that you may either be um, absorbing another fund or being absorbed into another fund and therefore, you know, the landscape can change quickly. and so. I think what that means in practice is that people have to be a bit more flexible and adaptable. Um, you know, you can't stand on ceremony too much about the way things are done in an organisation because they may need to change. Yeah. And so versatility is is really important. But the trick to it, of course, is there are a lot of things that are changing in ter- terms of structures and processes and organisation when these things are happening. But what you've got to remember in an investment team is not to throw the baby out with the bathwater, not to forget that there are 
investment principles and um, investment beliefs and values that stand the test of time and, and, and define your investment style, your investment philosophy, and will actually be key drivers of, of um, outperformance over time. So it's important to stay, despite all the moving pieces going on around you, not to lose sight of your ultimate purpose, which is to drive performance. Absolutely. So you kind of already flagged in, in that answer that obviously we're, we can anticipate there's going to be more consolidation in the industry. What are your views uh, on the outlook for the super industry in regards to mergers and, and I guess the industry at large? Yeah, I think that um, I know it, it was, I think it dates back to the Productivity Commission report many years ago, which created the concept of a world where we'd have a dozen mega funds. Um, yeah. And I, as a result of that, that a lot of attention is on that end of the spectrum, the growth in the, in the very large um, industry funds and other funds. Um, but actually, when you look, when you listen to the government and the regulator, their focus is at the other end of the spectrum. And what they seem to be most concerned about is uh, the ability for smaller funds to operate cost effectively. Yeah. So I think what we can expect to see is um, further consolidation, particularly for some of the smaller funds. Mm -hmm. um, and I think, um, you know, it's not just about investments. I think there are there are a lot of examples of small funds that that have excellent investment performance and can operate reasonably cost effectively, even at a size of say four or five billion dollars. Um, but they they will inevitably confront some challenges with in terms of whether it's administration or insurance or their IT platform. Yeah, you know, it's hard to run those things cost effectively at, at that size. So there's inevitably economic pressure on some of those groups to, to think about consolidating. Mm -hmm. um, so I think, I think that's just a long way of saying I think we can expect some degree of consolidation. I'm not sure that it will proceed as quickly as what everyone is talking about. Um, okay. And I think there's a certain sovereignty that a lot of funds have, a certain attachment that they and their members will have to their brand, their philosophy, their approach yeah. and you know they're not things that should be readily dispensed with carelessly dispensed with so i'm not sure that it will consolidate as quickly as what everyone has foreshadowed and i'm a little i guess i'm a little nervous about a world where we have 12 huge mega funds because i think there are all sorts of implications for market microstructure and liquidity and things like that um yeah that's probably for another day Okay, wonderful. Well, thank you so much again for taking the time to chat to us. Thank you, Jamie. It's a pleasure as always. You've been listening to Ross Barry, Chief Investment Officer at Spirit Super. We hope you enjoyed today's discussion. Please remember that you can subscribe to Financial Standard wherever you listen to your favourite podcasts. Thanks for listening to this Financial Standard podcast. For more information, visit financialstandard.com.au. Please keep in mind that the information discussed in this podcast is general in nature and does not consider personal circumstances. Reliance should not be placed on any content without further independent financial research and advice. 